Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Shriya Rana. In today's episode, we have my colleagues from PEI, Anurag Acharya and Avinash Karna, to talk about our recently published brief on Nepal's upcoming federal and provincial elections. Anurag is our Director of Practice with a background in international relations and journalism. He's a well-known political commentator and has written extensively on Nepal and South Asia for national and international publications. Avinash is our coordinator of subnational programs. He has a decade-long experience working in the areas of peace building and governance. The three of us discussed the key trends that we observed in our run-up to the upcoming general elections. These observations are based on PEI's ongoing subnational research on federalism in Nepal done in collaboration with the SOAS University of London. The research tracks issues of inclusion and representation, the nature of political alliances, the nexus of business and politics, and how this warrants a more vigilant role of the Election Commission. Welcome to you both. For those of you who've been following Pods by PEI, you may already know Anurag as a host of several of our previous episodes. So Anurag, how does it feel to be on the other side of the mic? I'm very excited, Shreya. Thank you. I'm definitely looking forward to it. We also have a second guest today, Avinash. A warm welcome to Avinash as well. Thanks, Shreya, for having me here. So let's begin by talking about PEI's subnational research, which is presented in the election brief. Anurag? Could you please explain the premises of the research and give us some idea about the methodology and the rationale of the research? Well, the research is our ongoing effort to understand how the political settlement is uh, panning out at the subnational levels after the last two decades of political and social movements. Usually we talk about the constitutional changes and power alignments at the national levels, but we do not uh, pay sufficient attention to the broader changes that are happening in our society at large. Now, this is where shifts in power and control over resources are taking place with various groups, whether they are ethnic, religious, uh, professional, or even political, interacting in a very, very contested space. Our research looks at these contestations, identifying major actors, tracing their horizontal and vertical networks of patron and clients to analyze their role and influence in the political settlement. We've developed uh, certain variables and qualifiers based on a theoretical framework a political settlement lens uh, prepared by colleagues at uh, SOAS University of London, professors uh, Mustaq Khan and Pallavi Roy, who are part of this research. I feel elections are crucial to understanding this settlement process as it sort of acts as a periodic test for each of the actors, whether they are political or social, uh, exercising their influence and also determines their limits uh, or access to formal institutions of power and resources, affecting their ability to consolidate and expand. Avinash, I know you've been leading the data and information collection for this brief. Maybe you could tell us a little more about, you know, the process of how you collected this data and how all the information was gathered. Sure, sure. To understand how the inclusive provisions are being carried forward in federal settings, we have gathered the candidates' information of both federal and provincial level from election commission and disaggregated it by gender, ethnicity, age groups, and political parties. Uh, to ensure the accuracy in ethnic disaggregation and classification, we engaged our provincial colleague and then analyzed the data 
to see how gender and ethnic groups are representing at provincial and federal level, especially in the major political parties, including Nepali Congress, UML, Maoist Center, Unified Socialist, and Rashtri Prajatantra Party. And at subnational level, we have disaggregated the data of uh, PSP, LSP, and Nagarik Unmukti Party. That is a very extensive process, I must say, Avinash. And I'm glad that you touched upon gender and caste and inclusion. We also just recently uh, released an episode on the gender election process where our guest, she spoke about how it's the same set of people that are claiming representation through elections. You, as you know, the candidacy criteria is still very ageist and it still values experience over merit. Now, your analysis, while it supports most of these claims, it also goes on to further state, and I quote from the brief, the days of the septuagenarian leaders ruling the roost may well be over in Nepali politics. Anurag, could you tell us more about what this means and how this would impact Nepali politics? Uh, well, we need to look at this uh, from both long-term and short-term uh, you know, perspective, and, and, and indications are there. Uh, yes, our election process is very gendered, with uh, mostly men in privileged position of social and political hierarchy repeatedly occupying formal institutions of power uh, and being in decision-making capacity. Uh, there is a reason for that. Nepali politics had for a long time been an exclusive domain with women and people of marginalized ethnicity and backgrounds struggling to break into the top tier of that space. Um, despite being strongly mobili mobilized as uh, foot soldiers in, in the past, uh, social and uh, political movements, whether it's uh, anti-Rana autocracy movement, whether it's a movement against the Panchayat, the Maoist movement, or the social and political movements post-2008. But that seems to be changing uh, slowly, but uh, definitely changing. And largely due to political representation guaranteed for women and the marginalized groups in the interim constitution of 2007 and subsequently the 2015 constitution. Despite not having groomed sufficient number of women, minorities and uh, leaders from ethnically marginalized groups, political parties have been forced to field them through PR lists uh, in the last three election cycle. Uh, as a result, what it has done is it has given voice to those constituencies and even helped bring out some leadership. And that voice will now only grow stronger, forcing the political parties to check exclusion within their ranks. And then there are short-term indications. Uh, we see a level of frustration among the common public, especially youths, who are tired of the uh, repeated scandals and petty power game involving same set of leaders across different political parties. Uh, uh, so it's not surprising that a country with uh, such a young population are now demanding new faces to represent them, uh, which is something that has come out very strongly even in our election brief. You'll see that uh, many senior leaders across different political parties have uh, now conceded candidacy to younger leaders. Some have uh, even chosen to be included in the PR list. Whether or not many of the new faces will actually be voted in is, is a different matter because that depends on a combination of factors like alliances, agendas, and relative advantages. But it does indicate a definite shift. Anrag, you talk about contestations for political representation. Could you tell us more about how these contestations have played out, particularly in Tarai Madhes politics? 
Well, our provincial political settlement research actually began with uh, Madhya Pradesh because we feel this is one of the most interesting provinces to look at in terms of how the past and present movements have uh, shaped the uh, social and political landscape here. Uh, this is the land where uh, demographically less than 3% of the so-called upper caste, who are also the landed class, have had disproportionate access to power and control over resources. That has been protected and legitimized by uh, Kathmandu's centralized administration, which again is run by hill caste groups. The Madhesh movement was instrumental in uh, Nepal becoming a federal nation, which uh, ended uh, hill administration's uh, political patronage uh, to certain caste and class of people. Now, the political representation uh, accessed by uh, uh, Yadavs and non-Yadav OVCs have made them a decisive force in Tarai Madhesh politics lately, with strong leadership emerging. But other groups like Madhesi Dalits, Tharus and Muslims have yet to organize themselves to develop into a strong political constituencies. Despite the demographic strength they possess, we've mentioned this uh, to a great extent in our provincial political uh, settlement paper, which will be coming out shortly. But uh, we also mentioned some of this in our upcoming election brief. Coming back to you, Avinash, um, in the local elections brief, uh, which was published in May, you mentioned that several of the mayoral candidates who had actually won with a significant majority in the last local elections, they didn't even get a repeat candidacy during this election. Now, what do you think this uh, means? Like, why do you think this happened? And do you think this is also happening at the federal and the provincial elections as well? Based on our own observations of a limited number of local government units across three provinces, uh, we believe the candidacy was determined by three factors. Number one, approval of the party's municipal and district committee members and their political pattern at the provincial and federal level, who may or uh, may not assess the performance of the mayor. And number two, providing a space to the competing aspirants in the party who had considered their candidacy in the previous elections. And number three, and most importantly, capability of the aspirants to manage election expenses and chances of winning. The eventual candidacy list that we saw reflected all these factors. The rules are same even for the provincial and federal levels, but the good thing is the need to be more inclusive and pressure from next generation of leaders have forced many senior leaders to concede their candidacy in different political parties. A common factor between the local elections and the upcoming parliamentary election is many aspirants who lost out in the candidacy due to alliance accommodation or some other reason have rebelled as independents or even switched party to contest. I'm glad, Avinash, that you brought up the element of alliance. And talking about alliances, uh, the Maoists are aligning with the Nepali Congress, the UML aligning with the RPP. Now, these aren't political parties that have historically seen eye to eye, especially in terms of ideology. Even Janta Samajwadi Party and the Loktantrik Samajwadi Party switched sides at the last moment. Now, how do we make sense of all of this? Well, uh, we do understand the need for alliances uh, in the modern-day multi-party political system, don't we? Uh, I mean, it does lend a degree of uh, political stability. But then there has to be some basis to forge any electoral alliance. You look at India, 
where the ruling National Democratic Alliance has remained together with very few defections to Congress-led uh, UPA, which is an alliance based uh, largely on secular agendas, opposed to NDA's uh, BJP, which champions Hindutva politics. Now look at NC allying with the Maoists, who were until very recently deep in love with their UML comrades. And, and you, you wonder if there is any concrete basis to that alliance besides the leaders dragging their party along just to outdo uh, one another. Otherwise, how do you uh, explain alliance between UML and Upendra Yadav's JSP, who don't even see eye to eye on several constitutional issues, including on federalism and crucial citizenship bill? So. If you ask me how do I make sense of all this, my reply is it's election politics. It's temporary and based on short-term bargains. Alliances are indeed opportunistic in nature, but do you also think that this has impacted the candidate selection process, Avinash? Uh, I have already mentioned how aspiring leaders have filed independent candidacy or switched sides in many places. But there is also anger and discontent among cadres and party leaders who aren't necessarily contesting as candidates, but are engaged in the political campaigning. They feel conflicted uh, in their loyalty for the party and having to campaign for rival candidates with whom there is little ideological or agenda-based affinity. Like Anurag mentioned, it is a short-term arrangement for the top leaders, but for the cadres on the ground, it is politically a difficult experience. Another notable observation in your pre-election brief, it, it is the entry of business people into mainstream politics. Now, is this being played out in terms of who gets candidacy and what would be the impact of this after elections? Well, to begin with, uh, I believe uh, politics is and uh, should remain open for all sections of the population. And business community do have a legitimate stake in that uh, political process. Uh, industrialists and businesses have always supported political parties based on their own beliefs and leanings. Some have even contested polls to advance the agendas on behalf of the business community and to protect their legitimate interests. There's nothing wrong with that. Where it gets tricky is uh, when it becomes difficult to distinguish uh, personal interests from a collective good. When a politician, businessman or not, advances agendas that benefit a small group of people at the expense of others, and all this happens through a legitimate parliamentary process, I feel that is the biggest challenge our political system is currently facing. Instead of inclusive politics driving economic growth and social changes and consequently benefiting various sections, including the business community, it is the money supplied from the businesses that is uh, driving our politics. Uh, in that sense, uh, business is becoming engine of our political system, including the election process. And that is extremely worrying because those that control the flow of money then are able to control the policy and governance spaces. Avinash, you know how this is uh, impacting local uh, politics. Maybe you can explain that. This is absolutely correct. If one looks at the local politics, the way political parties have fielded candidates, it is not difficult to see that increasingly local contractors and businesses have made a transition from supporting political parties to influencing their candidacy selection. In many cases, becoming candidates and benefiting from local government contracts and even responsible for plundering of natural resources. At the federal level, we have mentioned uh, in the brief 
how certain parliamentarians who have business interest were decisive in drafting or making changes in the bills, for example, on education or on health. So you've talked about this nexus at both federal and the subnational levels. Now, how do you think this will impact elections in Nepal? And what has the role of the Election Commission of Nepal been in this regard to make sure that the elections are fairly conducted? As you can see that we've already seen trending hashtags like, no, not again, this has worried the Election Commission. Do you think we're going down the line where people may reconsider whether or not they want to vote? It's a good question and something that should uh, haunt us as, a, as common citizens who are going to vote uh, in the next few days. Uh, we need to ask ourselves, are we actually exercising our sovereign rights or are we simply becoming a rubber stamp for a small group who are running this country like their fiefdom? Um, to Election Commission's credit, it has indeed uh, stepped up and is trying to discourage candidates from overspending in order to create some kind of level playing field for the candidates. I mean, there have been some criticisms uh, you know, of Election Commission as well, but uh, that's uh, quite understandable. And, it, and uh, Election Commission has also been monitoring the use of social media to prevent uh, negative campaigning and the spread of disinformation. These are all positive changes, but we also need to look at the broader political process and the culture that drives our politics. I see some encouraging changes there too. I've said earlier, political parties are forced to be more inclusive in their candidacy selection. More women and marginalized sections are being represented. But it's simply not enough. The fact that political parties are not rewarding or penalizing aspirants based on their past performances in office or their public approval has angered voters. The same set of uh, senior leaders have occupied positions at the top of political parties and the government, which is also quite frustrating for the voters. The anonymously run hashtags like no not again campaign is uh, a manifestation of that, which is worrying for the electoral process and the voter turnout. And it can also be used to drive negative campaign against uh, political opponents. Now that we're coming to the end of the episode, there's one last question for the both of you. You seem to indicate that voters may lose interest in the election process if this situation persists. Now, what do you think can be done to instill that faith in the electoral system or to even strengthen it? Well, I feel the Election Commission must uh, take a hard look at not just the election process, but our entire political process leading up to the elections. From where I see it, uh, there is no constitutional or legal checks to prevent conflict of interest among those occupying public office. Um, from a parliamentarian to a cabinet minister to the commission member holding constitutional offices, we, uh, we need a strong law that prevents not just people with conflicting interests from holding uh, these offices, but also specific checks that bar them from uh, participating in the policy making or decision making where their interests are conflicted. What this will do is it will gradually discourage interest groups from controlling policy making and decision making spaces. I have nothing against uh, external lobbying, but uh, they cannot be part of the formal process. Uh, at the moment, I feel the money being pumped into the political and electoral process is actually helping certain interest groups from capturing the policy making and decision making spaces which the media has also been indicating as a policy corruption. But then it will be very hard to call it out unless we have a definite law that allows us to say that this is illegal. I completely agree. Uh, if we have such reforms, 
it can significantly help to filter out people with conflicted interest from controlling local politics, allowing popular leaders with mass base to reclaim their influence in grassroots politics. Perhaps a lot of discontent and defections from the political parties during the local election were due to whole timers discouraged by parties giving candidacy to individuals with deep pockets. Maybe that's where our politics needs to make correction. Indeed. Thank you, Avinash, and thank you, Anurag, for your valuable insights into the electoral processes. Thank you, Thank Shreya. you, Shreya. Thank you all for tuning in. You can read the pre-election brief on the PEI website. And that's a wrap on today's episode. Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Anurag and Avinash on some major election observations based on our long-term research on federalism, including the issues of inclusion and representation, the nature of political alliances, the nexus of business and politics, and how all of this warrants a more vigilant role of the Election Commission. Today's episode was produced by Saurabh Lama with support from Nirjan Rai, Kushi Hang, and Shidon Kansakar. The episode was recorded at Mint Audio Studio and edited by Saurabh Lama. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Chakya from Zindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube, to catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at Tweet2PEI, that's Tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI, and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Shia Rana. We'll see you soon in our next episode.